Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Friday, August 3rd, 2012. You just can't make some stuff up. Uh, We'll just let the program unfold. You'll see what I'm talking about in a minute. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God, and we try to have a little bit of fun along the way. <sighs> okay, so um, I, on well, you know that Tim uh, Elmore sermon that I reviewed earlier this week, uh, the one where basically in order to be more obedient to Christ, we need to have less biblical data and information. Apparently, biblical data and information gets in the way of obedience. I mean, who knew? <laughs> I well, I'm looking at my email uh, right now, and I didn't get one email from Pastor Charmley regarding that sermon. I didn't get two from Pastor Charmley. <laughs> <laughs> regarding that sermon. I got three of them. I am uh, no joke. I got Pastor Charmley wrote me three emails regarding that sermon. <laughs> and it's like, and they're great. They're just fantastic emails. So I can't wait to share them. We're, we're going to be sharing them with you here today. And, and then um, <laughs> kind of working off of yesterday's program. Good night. The how to prophesy se- segment. Well, here's kind of, here's one of those embarrassing things. Okay. Um, you know, what do you do if you believe that, you know, that so-and-so is a prophet, you know, like Rick Joyner or, you know, Bob Jones or Patricia King or Todd Bentley or, you know, name the weird folks over in that bizarre, bizarre group. And, you know, what happens when the prophets start contradicting each other? Well, don't worry, Patricia King will put a video (laughs) together to somehow smooth out the wrinkles. <laughs> just, you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> it just cracks me up. I just... <laughs> I mean, seriously, okay? Yeah, I mean, you got one of those embarrassing things going on where within that particular circle, you got all these different people prophesying in different directions, and now they're contradicting each other, which should tell you something. Uh, they're not true prophets. They're false prophets. And and other and people are taking notice. You know, what do you do 
Well, don't worry. Patricia King will fly in and <laughs> give you instructions on how to understand when prophets of today contradict each other in their prophecies. Some are saying everything's going to be okay. Other people are saying head to the mountains and store up you know, dry food. Oh, man. And so what do you do in a situation? That's rather embarrassing, especially when they're all in the same wing. And so Patricia King, she has got the solution. We will be playing that today, and I am <laughs> just... <laughs> You just can't make this stuff up. And then uh, to to balance out the first hour, we're going to be listening to two segments from uh, uh, a recent sermon preached by Stephen Furtick um, about fear. And I mean, he was really excited about it. There's you know, there's a highlight uh, video put on his uh, on his blog. And, uh, boy, you know, when you get to the biblical teaching part of it, I mean, talk about missing the point. I mean, somebody, please pony up some money. We should take a an offering to uh, send Stephen Furtick back to a Southern uh, Theological Seminary for, you know, remedial hermeneutics work. I mean, it, it needs to be. It needs to happen. That's just all I'm saying. So, um, and then in hour number two. Notice I'm just laying out what we're going to do today because we've got to get into it because it's going to take all the whole program to do it. <laughs> anyway, like it doesn't take the whole program. Anyway, um, and then in hour number two, uh, we're going to be listening to a sermon about the importance of having a contagious faith. And the reason I picked it, it's it's not because well that Christians ought not to share the faith and you know tell people about Jesus. The reason I picked it is is just it's one of these. <laughs> It's like a homiletical mismatch. I mean, the topic is about the importance of sharing your faith, and the, bi <laughs> the biblical text that he picked for this is what it doesn't have anything to do with sharing the faith. It's like, what? So it's just today's edition of Fighting for the Faith is brought to you by The Twilight Zone. Hey, yeah, have you. If you haven't watched The Twilight Zone, go to Netflix.com. They're all on the InstaWatch. And, and just imbibe heavily. It's kind of like that edition of Fighting for the Faith. It's just weird. Anyway, so I'm just going to dive into it because we've got so much ground to cover with three emails from Pastor Charmley. I don't even know if I can get to all three of them today, but let's let's do this. Three emails from Pastor Charmley. Again, I may not be able to get to all of them. <clears throat> First one kind of you know sets it up. Uh, the uh, the the subject reads: uh, Pastors who will not teach the Bible. He says, listening to the rant by Tim Tim Elmore the other day on the other day's program, I thought, who is teaching the people who go to this church what the Bible teaches? And we could repeat that question with many places. Who is teaching these people the Bible? What we have is a completely false idea of what constitutes Christian maturity. That's absolutely true. The Apostle Paul prayed that the Ephesians be filled with all the fullness of God. Well, 
You have the people in supposed churches who have no idea at all what that means and whose pastors will never tell them. That is criminal. No one will ever seek to be filled with all the fullness of God if they don't know what it means. I ask myself, how many of these people who are crying out to be fed are, in fact, baby Christians who are longing to grow? That, that's the thing that scares me. And, and here's, here's the reason why. You know, it's one of the perennial complaints in the seeker-driven churches, you know, that that these guys always seem to poo-poo from the pulpit and take shots at those who are saying these things, is that uh, is that people say they want to go deeper in the scriptures, that these sermons aren't deep enough, they want more Bible, and they're chastised and browbeaten for saying these things. And so here's the idea is that it's completely possible that many of these people who who are leveling these complaints are in fact born again regenerate Christians who are starving to death you know i feel like we need to put to, you know you know get one of those uh, what are those cargo planes a C130 you know and see if we can like parachute in bibles you know just land them right in the parking lot is you know emergency food supply for the starving Christians at these churches <clears throat> anyway, um, Pastor Charmley continues. He says, people attending these uh, these places will not be taught the Bible. They will, however, be victimized by greedy, self-centered men who want their money and their work, the latter for free, of course. Maturity, well, it, it is the men who are claiming to be pastors who are attacking the intelligent, who are, in fact, the best example of Erzstadt's maturity. Most of them appear to be rather narcissistic and to prefer a level of humor somewhere below the undergraduate level. Their messages are shallow in the extreme, often based on poorly digested pop psychology and filled with long rambling anecdotes about, well, themselves. There is a saying about those in glass houses, and I should say that it applies here. For you see, a major part of maturity is learning that the world does not, after all, revolve around me. Yet the whole point of narcissistic eisegesis is that the messages convey, convey that entirely immature attitude. Pastors need to realize that they are not indispensable. I am, I am merely the latest in 24 pastors at the church in Hanley in 200 years of history. The church, universal, has had thousands of years of history. And who art thou, O oh man? Immaturity at its essence is seen in those who wish to thrust themselves upon the world stage, who believe that the world needs them. My dear chap, the world got on fine without you and will get on fine when you are dead and gone. The world needs Jesus and your self-promotion is not giving the world Christ. Take that wicked man myself and put him where he belongs, on the cross. Then proclaim Christ and him crucified, that you may not gather crowds, but that you will find that life is so much better when you can forget yourself for Christ's sakes. Uh, perhaps one of the best statements on true spiritual maturity is Theodore Monod's great hymn. <clears throat> I read, Oh, the bitter shame and sorrow that a time could ever be when I let the Savior's pity plead in vain and proudly answered all of self and none of thee. Yet he found me, I beheld him, bleeding on the accursed tree. Hear him pray, forgive them, Father. And my wistful heart said faintly, some of self and some of thee. 
Day by day his tender mercy, healing, helping, full and free, sweet and strong, and ah, so patient, brought me lower while I whispered, less of self and more of thee. Higher than the highest heavens, deeper than the deepest sea, Lord, thy love at last hath conquered. Grant me now my supplication, none of self and all of thee. Great hymn. Nice progression in there, too. Second email from Pastor Charmley. <clears throat> email reads, Tim Elmore is being ridiculous. <laughs> By the way, the next one reads, Tim Elmore is excessively ridiculous. This is a progression here. Pastor Charmley, in his second email, writes, he says, Dear Chris, is it just me or is Tim Elmore being excessively intellectual in a sermon attacking the taking in of too much information? I mean... I'm one of those expository preaching Calvinists who spends hours in the study, but I would never dream of using an acronym such as EQ without explaining what it means. Actually, I would never use an acronym in the pulpit if I could possibly help it, unless it was something incredibly, something incredibly common like radar. Nor would I ever use the word volitional. Information without application causes volitional obesity. I mean, of course, it's not a phrase anyone uses in daily conversation because Mr. Elmore just made it up. And volitional, really. He couldn't think of a common word to use. For instance, the, uh, the, like the omni words that are perfectly good words in common use, I would never say omnipotent in a sermon. I prefer almighty because it is, first of all, good Anglo-Saxon. And second, it is better understood being derived from all and mighty, common English words. You know what your volition is, don't you, he asked. Well, if Plymouth, Michigan is anything like Hanley Stoke-on-Trent, I would hazard a guess that 90% of the congregation would reply, no, not a clue. When was the last time you used volitional in a conversation? Now, come to think of it, yeah, pa Pastor Charmley, I think there's probably a higher probability that the folks in Hanley, um, th that they would use the word volitional in a conversation, whereas in the United States, there's probably like... Mm, like a better chance of winning the lottery than the average American using a word like that. Just, you know, just saying. Anyway, <clears throat> he, he, Pastor Charmley continues, says, I cannot remember when I used the word volitional. I, I hope I have never said volitional in a sermon, and I give the organist full permission to, uh, <laughs> to, uh, to clout me over the head with a hymnal if I ever do. Ooh, sounds painful. Oh, dear. If you're going to complain about intellectualism, do it in simple vocabulary. <laughs> Vocabulary. Otherwise, you will merely cause people to laugh at you. That's right. See, if you're if you're going to say things like "down with intellectualism," I strongly recommend, you know, going down to the hood and saying that like you know one of the homies. Okay, you know, down with you know, <laughs> but I mean. Being intellectual in your attack on intellectualism doesn't make any sense. Anyway, he says, and what is the what in the world is uh, an obese will? Note that he has to spend some time explaining what his clever little term volitional obesity means. If he had said, taking in too much information without acting on it weakens the will, he would have saved all that time. I cracked up when I heard him say, you know what your volition is, don't you? I mean, it betrays the fact that this man does does believe what he says. Of course, if you take all this to its logical conclusion, it is best that you keep people as ignorant as possible and not explain anything to them in case they fail to act on it. 
which of course utterly is utterly ridiculous and completely unworkable and very, very daft. And high arrogance seems to describe so many of those folks whose sermons you review. So I wonder. All right, now that's email number two. And I told you with Pastor Charmley, there's three emails. I think I'll just go ahead and read the third. Tim Elmore is excessively ridiculous. This is the third. <laughs> we got three Pastor Charmley emails on the Tim Elmore. And there's a progression here. Uh, he says, Tim Elmore is excessively ridiculous. Dear Chris, that is the only way to describe him. Someone needs to inform Tim Elmore <laughs> of this. He reads Paul, and then rather than doing what he ought to do, emulating him by preaching Christ crucified, he gets all theoretical. He gives a lecture on information and communication, which surely counts as exactly the sort of excessive information folk can do without on his theory. Uh, when I was at seminary, we were warned of the danger of preaching about the gospel, talking theoretically rather than declaring the gospel of Christ and him crucified. Worst of all is preaching about preaching, talking about talking. And the idea that the Corinthians knew all the information is utterly laughable. They were immature because they thought they knew it all and they did not. Now, any college professor will tell you that the answer to a know-it-all student is to teach him that he does not know it all. The know-it-all is shallow. He does not know anything, but thinks he knows everything. So a freshman thinks he knows everything. The graduate knows that there is so much he does not know. And I taught through Hebrews a while ago. The whole point of the passage is that these people have regressed. They have forgotten things. Right. They've forgotten things that they've heard. Um, the writer says, you have need that somebody should teach you. Now, what does a teacher do? Hmm. Teaches, imparts knowledge, <laughs> information. This basic fact seems to have escaped Mr. Elmore. The writer does not say, you need to put what you know into practice, but you need someone to teach you the elementary principles. You need to go back to elementary school and learn the alphabet again, is what is being said here, honestly. Talk about Bible twisting in plain sight. Yeah, it it was all of that for sure. Great emails, Pastor Charmley. <laughs> Thank you for your contribution. Moving along. Have you ever found yourself in, well, that awkward moment when two of your favorite prophets that you believe are both really hearing from God contradict each other? I mean, talk about awkward. Well, n never worry. Patricia King has come up with a solution, and the solution is to put together a video that will iron out the differences that you hear from these prophets without throwing them under the bus and calling them false prophets. There's got to be a way to iron it out. Here's Patricia King to explain how. In this hour, there's so many prophetic insights coming from many different voices and many of them credible prophets in the body of Christ, but they seem contrary to one another. One <laughs> they seem. See, see, it's just a mount. It's it's just a perception. Might be really kind of negative saying, oh, the times ahead are so difficult, so hard, and, you know, their nations are going to drop into the sea and stuff like that. And then others are saying, no, God is good all the time. Everything's going to be great. And there's confusion sometimes over people thinking, well, well, 
what do I do? What do I believe? How do I prepare? Do I go? I, I have an idea. It's real simple. Stop listening to all of those people who claim to be prophets and open your Bible. It's that simple. God doesn't lie. God doesn't contradict himself. God is not schizophrenic. And the Holy Spirit is not our weird, crazy Uncle Al. So that being the case, I don't need any of those prophets. I have the Word of God. You see how that works? It's really simple. I can trust the Word of God. Plus, I have to test all the prophets against the Word of God anyway. So that means the thing I should really be trusting is, well, the Word of God. And hide out in a cave and store up dried food or water or whatever, or do I go on as usual? And so today's clip, I want to address some of that. And I'd like you to turn in your Bible to uh, Genesis chapter 2, because a lot of times these... Um, Genesis chapter 2 is the story of creation. Um, hmm. What does this have to do with prophets that are contradicting each other? Kind of, 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 you know, opposite words or what seems opposite, what seems contradictory are not at all. They're just different sides of the same coin. Oh, yeah, that'll clear it right up. See, it's, it's, it's both. It's just two different sides of the same coin. It's prosperity all the time and God's going to cause nations to fall into the sea. See, it's just two sides of the same coin. It's, they're the same. But you have to make sure that you read the right mail. And so I... <laughs> read the... <laughs> what? <laughs> There's two sides of the same coin, but you need to make sure you read the right mail. Um. Okay, I only read the mail that comes to my mailbox that has my name on it. <laughs> what does that have to do with contradicting prophets? I want to say, fear not for the future, you know, because there's good things ahead, but you need to rightly discern what your mail is. Throughout the scriptures, even in the Gospels, you'll see Jesus, for example, uh, giving warning about the end time, even describing the difficult tribulation and stuff. But make sure your name is on the mail. <laughs> um, I don't understand the metaphor. I'm a little confused here. Um, what does that mean? Um, so, I mean, I only take in the prophetic statements that have my name on it. Because if it's for outsiders, if it's for those who are not um, walking uh, with him or in covenant with him, then that's for those people. It's not for his covenant children. So anyways, let's take a look at Genesis 3. So when, when one of these so-called prophets that you're referring to says that nations are going to fall into the sea, don't worry because if you're in covenant relationship with God, God will give you a rescue boat. Verse 8, it says, The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. So God created this, this garden that was full of delight. Yeah, I'm just not seeing the connection here between contradicting prophets and the story of Adam and Eve. I can't wait to see how she tries to draw these dots together. I think that's kind of cool that God likes gardening. Yeah. I, I used to like gardening when when I had more time, but God likes... Yeah, I don't particularly like it myself. Gardening, he likes growing things. He likes watching the beauty come forth and the fruitfulness come forth. Yeah. So he planted this beautiful garden, yeah. and he placed man in the midst of it. Right on. And it says, out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. Uh, right. And what... <laughs> right. This is... <laughs> story of 
create. What does this have to do with contradicting prophets again? And so everything was delightful. Everything was good. Yeah. And you might want to say good because that's what so describes God and what he does and what he creates. And it says that the tree of life he also created in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So there's this beautiful, beautiful garden and there's this tree in the midst of it called the tree of life. Yeah. And there's this other tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then in verse 10, it describes a river that flowed out of Eden to water the garden and where it divided into four parts. And one of them was Pishon, which speaks of gold. It was full of gold and different things. So God's garden was just full of riches and glory and abundance and beauty and goodness. And I believe that this parallels the spiritual garden that you live in today, that you are called in. <laughs> Oh man! <laughs> well, I well, okay. So I just need to embrace my spiritual garden. Got it? Okay. Wow. To by covenant through Christ, it's like a heavenly place of bounty. It's a kingdom place of His goodness. So it's like when the psychologists talk about go to your happy place. It's like that. It goes on to describe the different uh, rivers. And then in verse 15, it says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it, to watch over it. And we're to watch over the garden that the Lord has put us in, in the spirit. Yeah, again, <laughs> my happy place. In this life, as we've been placed in this garden of blessing and goodness. And he says, but... Uh, yeah, I, do, do you ever wonder if folks who who imbibe on this type of theology end up l literally being, you know, institutionalized after a while? I mean, seriously, this is like hamstringing your brain. I'm sorry. Verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man saying from any tree of the garden, you may eat freely. And that was even the tree of life. Man could eat freely of everything that was good, full of delight. Um, the tree of life, it could eat anything as freely as he wanted to. Again, what does this have to do with prophets contradicting each other? I'm just not seeing that connection yet. That's what you let off with. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Now that word knowledge there means knowledge, perception, skill, and discernment. In other words, it's what you perceive. It's your perspective of what you think. And I... <laughs> oh no, I see where this is going. This is not good. It says you, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat for in that day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. And that word die actually means not only to die, but it means to perish. In other words, if you eat off the wrong tree, you'll start to perish. You'll die. It, it, it also um, speaks of penalty, that word. So there's a penalty for eating off that tree. And of course, we know that Adam and Eve did. And there's a huge penalty and separation from God. But let's bring it into our day right now. Oh, please do. I can't wait to see how you do this. Through Christ, we have a covenant of blessing. And in my book, In the Zone... Which oh, <laughs> 
I apologize for the Patricia King commercial here. I hope that you all have, and if not, order it on our online store at xpministries.com. Order that book, In the Zone, because it teaches you how to live in the blessing of God. Another book that would be amazing for you and it will help you grow is called Create Your World. It teaches you how to create realms and, and uh, influence. <laughs> I'm just dumbfounded. This is unbelievable. Okay, you need to answer the question, Patricia. Okay, we got prophets that you think are all legit contradicting each other. And you've told me a story from Genesis and pointed me to two of your books. Um, can you resolve the tension, please? You know, it'll help you create a beautiful garden in the world that you live in, according to the promises that have already been given to you in Christ. And so we are to live and cultivate that kind of life, a life of blessing. But it says, if you eat off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you're going to die. Uh, no, <laughs> um, there's a weird change in pronouns that you're um, doing here. It doesn't say that if I eat off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I'm going to die. Um, that was a literal historical event with a literal historical tree in the very literal historical Garden of Eden that Adam and Eve, they were told that if they eat of it, they will die. Um why did you change the pronouns to make it sound like if I eat off of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Don't eat off that tree. What is that? There is a tree in the garden that Adam and Eve could look at, but they weren't to eat of it. When we look through the scripture, there's there's things that describe the hardship of the day, the day of gross darkness and the darkness that covers the earth and the people and, and you know, the day of the mark of the beast and the fall of Babylon and all of that. These are all things that you read about in the Bible, but they're not for you to eat of. Oh, just just, just don't eat it. Just just avoid it. You know, just cut them right out of your Bible. Cause... Because if you have eaten of Christ, if he is your bread, if he is your life, if he is your, your, your truth, if you are in covenant with him, uh. then you can look at that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But you don't eat of that no tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Therefore, when the prophets are speaking about difficult days coming in the earth and even in the nation... You can look upon that tree. It's okay to know about that, but it's not good to eat of that. It's not. Oh, <laughs> Why does anybody take this woman seriously? Good night. For you to partake of, you go and eat of the tree of life. Eat of the goodness of the promises of God in the garden that was prepared for you. Nowhere in the scripture, in the New Testament, does it say that in Christ we are to receive bad goods. The scripture says, even Jesus himself said, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I came that you would have life and in its goodness or in its abundance. Oh, this is such a dangerous teaching. Here's the reason why. Um, because so many of the passages of scripture that talk about God's judgment... There are clear calls from God to repent and to be forgiven. God is patient and long-suffering, even with those whom he is judging or going to judge. And so, I mean, if you take Patricia King's advice here, what are you going to end up doing? You're going to read your Bible in such a way that anything negative you just 
automatically reject it, delete it, and say it doesn't apply to me. I can't eat of the knowledge of good, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Otherwise, I'll die. And so now you're only accessing the, the fluffy, feel-good portions of the Bible. This is exactly what God chastised the false prophets of the time of Jeremiah for doing. You know, telling them, oh, everything's going to be okay with you. No evil's going to befall you. It's all going to be my little pony and rainbows and unicorns. And um, and while God, in no uncertain terms, just blows that to smithereens through the, the, you know, the, the prophetic preaching of Jeremiah. Hey, it seems to me that there's, there's a theme going on here. Uh, in all of the different heretical sectors... Uh, within the so-called visible church. I mean, we got people attacking the Bible, saying, you, if you want to be obedient, you need to have less Bible. Here you got Patricia King literally twisting a Bible story to basically come to the conclusion, anything negative, don't eat of it, don't listen to it. No, 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 just, just focus on the positive and the abundant, the stuff that lifts you up and makes you feel good. Oh, my. So how are people to be brought to repentance and of their sins and faith and trust in Christ using the Patricia King method? Well, the answer is they can't, and they won't. Why? Because Patricia King's a false prophet, it's just that simple. By the way, you can see this video at YouTube, youtube.com forward slash Patricia King 777. It really should be Patricia King 666. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> New from Los Lobos Ministry Records, an album that's just oozing with the love of Christ. It's Pastor Perry Noble's new techno praise album entitled More Like Jesus. The songs on this album will melt your face off in a sanctified way. This album includes... The number one purpose-driven praise techno dance song of all time, entitled, Well, You Might Just Want to Hear It For Yourself. If you're all about the jackass in the church, the jackass in the church is the person that always screams, I want to go deeper. You know what I tell people to say that around here? You're only as deep as the last person you served. You know what I tell people to say that around here? You're only as deep as the last person you served. What about the jackass in the church? The jackass in the church is the person that always screams, I want to go deeper. 
jackass in the church, the jackass in the church is the person that always screams, I want to go deeper. Don't you feel closer to Jesus after hearing that sample? Well, we've got another one for you, too. This one's entitled, You Officially Suck. I think that you officially suck as a human being. I think that you officially suck as a human being. Other tracks include Your Grandma Smokes Weed and I Don't Like Hanging Out with People That Make Me Uncomfortable. Act Now and Los Lobos Ministry will even throw in a free bonus track by Stephen Furtick entitled Cause They're Stupid. Here's a sample. Cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid. A lot of people don't like rock and roll in church. Cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid. A lot of people don't like rock and roll in church. Cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid. Cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid. A lot of people don't like rock and roll in church. Cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid. So act now and get Pastor Perry Noble's brand new Techno Praise album entitled More Like Jesus. Hello, I'm Brandon House with Worldview Weekend. I want to invite you to visit our website, worldviewweekend.com, and find out about my brand new book, Religious Trojan Horse. This is a book I've been working on for two and a half years, and it describes in great detail how the left and the right are coming together both religiously and spiritually to build a false, dominant church. You can find all the details at worldviewweekend.com. Again, it's Religious Trojan Horse. It's 500 pages over 600 footnotes. Now, while you're at worldviewweekend.com, I'd like you also to check out our Situation Room. You can have access to over $8,000 in Biblical Worldview Weekend resources, including over 1,400 MP3s of my daily radio show and Biblical Worldview Weekend keynote presentations. You can also watch about 150 of our Worldview Weekend DVDs on demand as a member of the Situation Room. Full details for that are at situationroom.net, situationroom.net. You can also visit our website and find out about our free Biblical Worldview Weekend rallies held all over the country. All the details are at worldviewweekend.com. All right, we're back. Uh, warning, beware of people who are trying to give you a spiritual lobotomy and make it impossible for you to read any portions of Scripture. Delete them, just, you know, take them out of the book. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is, well, listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can support us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll find our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 508 
Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you all who support us. We cannot do what we do without your financial support. And thank you for those of you who've been participating in the bake sale to help us get through the lean, mean summer months. By the way, you can still get your T-shirt or a bracelet where supplies are running low, by the way. Uh, and go to uh, piratechristianradio.com forward slash bake sale to uh, order yours today. All right, moving along. Yeah, that means we're doing a Stephen Furtick update. That's one of the better songs we play here. All right. Uh, yeah, that's uh, You're So Vain. I bet you think the Bible's about you. The uh, <clears throat> Cindy Stokes version. She's a listener uh, in Texas. Anyway. All right. So let me kind of set this up. Uh, the, Stephen Furtick has, well, he's classically uh, been what we call the poster boy, boy for narcissistic eisegesis. Now he's going. Th- he's been working his way through a sermon series about. It's called Room One Hundred and One, and this one is entitled "Fear's Greatest Hits." And I'm not going to play the whole thing. In fact, there's a good chance I might chop this up into two pieces, where we're going to deal with part of it today and the other part of it on Monday. It's just it, it's kind of that long, but. Um, what I want you to hear is what he's doing with the scripture. It's just bad. It, you know, I mean, bad doesn't even cover it. I mean, it's it's just flat out awful. I mean, it's like an adventure in missing the whole point of a text. And so I'm going to play for you kind of the setup uh, where he's talking about how the sermon's all about somehow Satan wants to create fear inside of you, fear to paralyze you. And, uh, you know, so that you don't achieve your purpose, fear that scratches up the album of your life so that you can't hear the audible inside of your heart voice of God. That 
kind of is that's actually what the sermon's really all about and it's weird what he does with the story of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Now, like I said, I'm going to end up probably cutting this into two sections, one today, one on Monday, but let's listen to Stephen Furtick as he sets up the so-called problem that apparently he's going to address with these biblical passages. I found out that that the devil if I let him will will try to scratch up my my spirit to the point where wow. where all I hear over and over again in my mind is this song, this one song. God's got all these things that he wants to say and do in my life. But this one song called... God has all these things he wants to say and do in my life. Called What If. Just play, and I don't like that song. That song is depressing. That song is discouraging. But, but we all, if I can take the analogy just a little bit further, all have scratches and indentions and... and now, and, for those of you who are younger... He's using a metaphor of a vinyl record. Now, I know that there's a lot of young kids who've never seen one of these things. <laughs> I grew up with them. Um, but, uh, you, know, the, you know, there was a time when if you wanted to listen to music, you didn't download it off of iTunes. You didn't use it on a compact disc. You had a vinyl record. And if they got scratched, they would skip or they would play the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over. Like that, you know. Anyway. And places deep in our soul, not just on the surface, where, where words, experiences, and failures can scratch our, our spiritual sensitivity to God. And one person said this, I kind of modified the quote, so I don't want to attribute it to the person. I might have messed it up a little bit how I, how I did it, but there, there was a quote one time that said, fear takes over when I give more weight to my what ifs than to what God says and who he is. And I think that's a, a pretty accurate way to describe how fear operates, what it does, and in some ways what it is. Okay, now that's the setup for the problem that he's addressing in this sermon. Okay, he's now going to switch gears and bring us into Daniel chapter 3 as somehow giving us a picture of what to do if the devil has scratched up your life so that you keep hearing the song, what if, what if, what if, apparently it's the whole point of fear. And you're going, what on earth does this have to do with sound biblical doctrine? I don't know. It's he, This is Stephen Furtick. I don't think he actually understands sound biblical doctrine or sound biblical doctrinal categories. He's all about motivating people to go and seize life, carpe diem kind of stuff. But listen to what he says here. But when it comes to the what ifs that the enemy sings to us, I want to read a scripture from Daniel chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. Daniel chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. And this is a scripture preached on at once during a series we did called Give Me Faith. I will not be able to do justice to it today, so you could go back and listen to it, and I'm sure I'll preach on it again. It's so there we go again. Kind of, you know, I'm noticing a theme here with uh, Stephen Furtick. It's a great passage. I'm not going to do it justice today. Why are you preaching then? The job of the pastor is to preach the word. I mean, are you too busy? Have you got more important things you should be doing at this time while you're preaching than, you know, actually opening up the biblical text and exegeting it and telling us about Christ? Because I'm about to do that with this text, by the way. And I think it's interesting that he's starting in the middle of the story, you know, verses 15 through, hmm, yeah, that means he's not telling the whole story. And somebody, a lot of times if somebody's not going to tell you the whole story, it's because, well, they have an agenda about something they want to teach, 
rather than moving out of the way and let God's word teach what it says. You see what I'm saying? But anyway, it's awesome, awesome scripture for faith and overcoming fear. But I just want to share one, one thought from it today. Daniel chapter 3 verse 15 says, and I probably should give you a little background. There's a king called Nebuchadnezzar. He's, uh, he's compensating for something apparently because he has this huge statue, like this 90-foot statue of himself built. And he's like, everybody bow down and worship it. When I play the music, you bow down. You worship my statue. And so the, the Hebrew boys, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's their, that's their name that they were given in the kingdom of Babylon. They've been taken away from their homeland, and they worship the God of the Bible, and they won't do it. They won't bow down. So Nebuchadnezzar hears about it, and he calls them to account and uh, he's going to represent fear how fear operates in our lives because he threatens them just like fear threatens now, notice what he's doing here he's going to represent fear we're just going to allegorize the text he see nebuchadnezzar he now we're going to take we're we're, I mean, seriously, go go and find like you know a picture of this story, you know, like from an old Sunday school book where they had illustrations, and just go and grab a sharpie and draw a little box over Nebuchadnezzar, and we're now going to allegorize the text and write into the box F E A R. See, Nebuchadnezzar isn't Nebuchadnezzar anymore; he represents fear. Oh, so this is Aesop's the Aesop's fable version of. Nebuchadnezzar and the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego story, all designed to help you overcome your personal fears that are holding you back from experiencing greatness and whatever God's calling you to do in your heart. Ugh, this, By the way, this is a major twisting of God's word when you start doing stuff like this. You. We're going to see what to do about that fear's greatest hit. A song called What If. All right, so in verse 15, he, he calls him before him. He's powerful. He can kill him, and they know that. And he says, now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, uh, turntables of all kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship to the image I've made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. All right? Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, oh, Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, no, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown in the blazing furnace, the God we serve, you see how I want to preach this a little stronger, but I'm not, I'm going to use restraint. The God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. All right, so there, there's a cool thing. But verse 18 is really what makes the passage awesome. He, they, they got they got it. They got it down. Uh, actually, verse 18 is not the verse that makes this passage awesome. I mean, to stop there and make that the awesome pa the thing is to, like, miss the whole point. I'll explain here in a minute because we're going to read this story and I'll teach it for you. Somehow they got it. They, they, they figured out what to do with fear. Let's learn from them. But even, verse 18, if he does not, God can and he will. But if he doesn't, but he will, but if he doesn't. Just for your benefit, I'm going to let you know what would happen if he didn't, but he will. That's why I need to tell you what I would do if he didn't, because he's going to. And I want you to know what I would do if he didn't, because he will. So this is just what I would do. This is the deleted scene. There will be no need for this. But if there were a need for us to burn up in this furnace, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set 
up. Okay. Now remember, we've taken a sharpie and and you know on the character that looks like Nebuchadnezzar, the one wearing the crown, we've written in over him fear, F E A R. You know, put a little label on him, so he's no longer Nebuchadnezzar. He's just fear. And so they acknowledge something. Now here's here's what you got to do when the devil comes to you singing, "What if? What if? What if?" And he sings, "What if?" You know, in different ways to different people. We're all born with different fears. Did you know that you're only born with two fears? I'm born with two fears. Fear of falling and the fear of loud noises. All other fears are acquired. Which also means that they can be unlearned. You don't have to live with them. And so when you have your specific what-ifs from the scratches on the surface of your life, I feel like this is going to help somebody, and the devil starts singing. By the way, we're done teaching the story here of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's all about learning from them. They pattern it. What do you do in fear at this point? Well, what if you try and you fail? What if that thing happens? What if your mother's heart condition is hereditary and... And you die too. What if... Uh, by the way, your mother's heart condition and all this kind of stuff that has nothing to do with the text there in Daniel chapter 3. Nothing at, at all. If it turns out completely differently than I thought and then I'm unprepared. What if I get sick? What if I never find someone to love me? I'm going to keep going till I hit yours. What if uh, this... Per- nothing in this list has anything to do with Daniel chapter 3, like at all person or that person, child, parents, you know, best friend dies, gets very sick. Uh, what if I lose my job? What if I keep my job? That could be scary too, depending on where you work. What if they laugh at me? What if this relationship goes wrong? What if I lose everything? What if, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if, and fear will just, what if, 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 so a lot of people are like, no, 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 la, 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 because now you can't hear God either, because you're going, la, 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 Yeah, yeah. if you've got to be listening for that internal voice of God speaking into your heart, you can't do that when you're going, la, 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 yeah, yeah, it must be tough. You can't do that. So here's, here's what I'm starting to try to do when the devil starts saying what if. What the, what the Hebrew boys did, actually, it's the same exact thing. You don't try to get what if to go away. You play it out. To its very end. And when you do that, you learn something about God's character and his purpose for you that, that actually takes the initial fear that you felt and converts it into stronger faith than you've ever had. Now, let me show you how. I'm going to show you how. Uh-huh. I don't even know what he's talking about. I mean, it's... I mean... This is like trying to mix water and oil. The two just don't go together, and it misses the whole point. All right, let, let me set this up for you. you. Got your Bible, Daniel chapter three. Great passage of, of scripture, and Jesus Himself shows up. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. You're going. He does. Yeah. Well, I'll I'll explain here in a second. Okay, so let me give you the historical setup. Okay, Israel, when they were in their own land, they rebelled against God and worshipped other gods. They began worshipping Asherah, Baal, Molech. By the way, it's a little known fact here. Um, Molech, the name Molech, you know, that's how it gets translated, you know, the name itself. That was not actually that particular false deity's name. That particular false deity actually went by the name Melech, okay? 
But the the Masoretes, the guys who were responsible for transcribing the Hebrew text, they moved the vowels around. Okay, and if you don't know anything about Hebrew, Hebrew doesn't actually have vowels, and the Masoretic text has little vowel symbols. Okay, and uh, what they did is they refused to refer to that false deity as Melech. You know that God was known as King. Okay. So they changed the, the the vowel points, and they literally stuck in a holum in there, uh, which which changed it from Melech to Molech. Molech doesn't mean king. Molech means shame. Okay? So the Masoretes refused to call that deity by his particular name, just so you know. Okay? False god. False god. But these the, the Israelites worshipped Baal, Asherah, Molech, and the host of heaven and all kinds of other things. And God sent prophets to them to call Israel to repent and be forgiven for her idolatry, for her false doctrine, her false prophets, her false deities. It it got so bad and so syncretistic that even within the very temple of God itself, there were little grottos to the different false gods. It was no longer, the temple of God was no longer the place where the divine name and presence resided. It became a syncretistic, well, sewer, for lack of a better way of putting it. And God finally, his patience wore out, and he sent Babylon to destroy Judah. Only a remnant survived. Only a remnant survived. We're talking judgment like you wouldn't believe. And so when we pick up this story, understand we're dealing with the remnant of Israel, the remnant of Israel who saw firsthand God's judgment against their nation because of their idolatry and their breaking of the first commandment that says, you shall have no other gods before me. Right? Okay. So there they are in captivity in a pagan country. Now, God had given them a promise that after 70 years they would return back to Israel. God promised them that. But they're in the midst of exile at this point because of idolatry, and they know firsthand that God is God and that there are no other gods except for the one true God. They are not about to go making that mistake again. But now their faith and their trust in God is being pushed to a point where it could cost them their lives. And you know what? There was many Christians who faced this exact dilemma. And you, in your lifetime, might face this dilemma yourself. So keep the historical context in mind. Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, its breadth 60 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image 
that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, may you live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods, or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. And the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it usually was heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks and tunics, their hats and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because of the king's the king's order was urgent. The furnace was overheated. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. I'm going to pause here for a second. I remember 
years ago, it's got to be about 10 years ago now, when my youngest daughter heard this story, having me being me reading it to her at the dinner table, at this point, she was hanging on every single word. When it said that they fell bound into the fiery furnace, she was almost to the point of tears. That something so terrible could happen. Something like this. And you can tell she was physically, visibly, deeply upset by this turn of events. And I assured her, I said, wait and see what God does. And I kept reading. Verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. I'm going to pause here for a second. When I read this to my daughter, when this section was read, she literally, this is a five-year-old girl, jumped up in exaltation and praise. And the first thing out of her mouth was, Jesus came to save them. Jesus showed up and he saved them from the fiery furnace. Exactly. Verse 18 is not the climax of this story. The most amazing part of this story is that Jesus himself shows up and Nebuchadnezzar declares it. He says, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, and the prefects, and the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except for their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people nation or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar is right. There is no other God who is able to rescue in this way, because no other God exists. There is only one. And that God came to rescue Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego 
from the fiery furnace. Now, in a similar way, not to allegorize the text, each and every one of us does face the real possibility of a fiery furnace. That's one of the phrases that Jesus uses to describe hell. Each and every one of us understands that our sins have earned us hell in eternity in the lake of fire. But see, there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. And our God does rescue us from the fiery furnace. And he does it by coming to earth, living perfectly under the law, a sinless life. And then he takes your sin upon himself and is crucified on a cross. He's pierced for your transgressions. He's bruised for your iniquities. The chastisement that gives us peace with God was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. This story preaches of the God who saves from the fiery furnace. But see, there are Christians worldwide, around the world, who live in nations where it's illegal to be Christians. And the fate of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, of having to die rather than serve other gods, of die rather than not confess Christ. This is not some theoretical, fictional, metaphorical thing. It's real. And it's important to know that Jesus Christ says, I am the resurrection and the life, and even though you die, anyone who believes in me, even though you die, yet shall you live, and you will not even taste death. It's important to know that we have brothers and sisters in Christ worldwide who today have been torn apart, shot, tortured, and killed for their confession of faith in Jesus Christ. They would rather die. They would rather yield up their bodies than serve and worship Allah. They would rather yield up their bodies than not confess Christ or or agree to shut up. This is not hypothetical, this is real. And here's the good news. That even though their bodies are torn asunder, even though they are martyred for the faith, Christ is there at their death with them the same way he was there with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they were in the fiery furnace. For when their bodies are destroyed, the one true God is whose presence they go to be with immediately upon their death. This is not about metaphorical fear, of finding some mystical hidden purpose for your life and not having fear to overcome it. This is about a showdown between the one true God and false gods and all who exalt themselves above the one true God. It could really cost you your life. It could really cost you your job. It could really cost you your marriage. It could really cost you your, mar your, your relationship with your parents. It could really cost you your relationship with your siblings. It could really cost you re your relationship with your children or others. There's a real cost to proclaiming Jesus Christ and confessing him. 
And so this text gives us comfort that even in the midst of our trials, Christ is there with us to see us through. And we as Christians are called to believe in the God, the only one who is able to rescue in this way, the only one who is able to rescue. And he saves us from the fiery furnace of hell in a very similar way that he saved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. And today, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're in the presence of God in the heavenly kingdom. You'll meet them someday. If you've been brought to repentance and faith in Christ, you will meet them. But the martyrs of the Christian faith are many, and they are here today now. And the reality is, is that if things keep going the way they're going in our country, you might have the same opportunity to yield up your body rather than serve and worship any other god or agree to be quiet about the gospel. You might have that opportunity in your lifetime. Something to consider. Now that's what this text is about. That's truly what this text is about, and ultimately it's about Christ, and the climax is not what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say to Nebuchadnezzar. The climax is that Christ himself shows up to rescue them. Well, Stephen Furtick goes on in the sermon to finally give us some closure. I mean, he goes on and talks about a whole bunch of other things, but here's his summary of this text. Oh, by the way, um, Daniel, uh, Dan, the boys, uh, the three Hebrew boys in Daniel chapter 3, they all lived, and it was awesome. Just in case you were wondering. And Nebuchadnezzar was like, oh, man, God is awesome. That's how that one ends. But in- yeah, that's his summary. Ta-da! It's like telling a joke without telling the punchline. How do you preach a text without preaching Christ? Well, plain and simple. Stephen Furtick said it early on. He doesn't have time to really preach that text. He's got more important things to do. Helping people allegorize the text so that they can face their fears, so that they can you know, listen to the voice of God in their hearts and follow after some fleeting, mysterious so-called purpose that God has for them, some, you know, some great thing that they're supposed to be accomplishing. And so that's a summary. Hey, by the way, they lived, and it was awesome. I mean, that's like going to Outback Steakhouse and ordering a steak dinner and not getting the steak. I mean, what's the point? What's the point of preaching a text if you're not going to preach Christ? Especially one where he clearly shows up. All right. We're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Sermon review when we come back. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... 
listening to Byron Christian Radio. From the creators who brought you Bible Pants and Vision Lacks comes the brand new super special awesome comedy album of the 21st century. Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater of the Budgie Cuts. Part 2. We here at Pirate Christian Studios have been hard at work crafting this album for maximum quality and hilarity. You'll cry. <coughs> you'll laugh. <laughs> you'll scream. <coughs> and you'll have uncontrollable flatulence. Just stick to the script, please. So sorry, um... Buy it now while stocks last. They download it. There is no supply which to run out. Oh, so you mean they can just go right onto iTunes and download it? Yes. Like right now? If they want to, yes. Oh. Well, to heck with this commercial. I'm off to buy it right now. Get back here! We're not on yet! Max Holiday's Birdcage Shooter, The Buddy Cuts Part 2. Disapproved of by Heretics Everywhere. Get it before they do. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. Now, i got to warn you ahead of time about the sermon. And what I mean by that is this. There's, there's some good things about this sermon. This one is off in degrees. It's, it's not like the normal sermon we review here in the bad sermon category. But the degrees make, make a difference. And I'll explain it as we go. Let's cue this up. The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via the Highlands Church, or Highland Church, in um, Plover, Wisconsin. Pastor Dan presiding, Dan Winkleman. Seems like a nice guy. Now, the reason I picked this one is because, well, well, by the way, the name of the sermon is Be Contagious. Be Contagious? I thought viruses are contagious. The reason why I went after this one is because the, this guy has a heart for reaching the lost. It's so clear. And he really is not somebody who is out there denying the doctrine of hell or anything like that. In fact, he, he verbally affirms it. Okay? But I think, well... You'll see as the story unfolds that he's got the emphasis on the wrong syllable. And when you've got the emphasis on the wrong syllable, you're kind of not communicating properly. And I'll explain it as we go. So like I said, there's much to commend in this sermon. And I would like to challenge it at a fundamental level, believing that it's off by a few degrees. And it's focusing really kind of in the wrong place. You're going to notice that there's a lot of law here. And that will actually kind of play out as we do the sermon review. So, without any further ado, uh, here is Pastor Dan and his sermon entitled, Be Contagious. This is about evangelism. Here we go. Uh, We're just excited about what God's doing. And uh, we have a new series that we're kicking off uh, uh, today. It's called Be Contagious. Be Contagious. And... uh, 
It's about uh, developing a contagious faith. That's the message for today, developing a contagious faith. But it's about becoming a contagious Christian. I can tell you right now, in the uh, postmodern world that we live in, what we need more than anything is God's house, his people, his believers, his followers to be contagious in their faith. Not to be kind of like asleep at the wheel hoping everything all works out. God wants us to be a passionate people. People who believe what we believe and we believe it to such a degree that we're willing to share it. That we're not willing, we're not willing to just bury it and hold it in. And so this morning I want to start out, uh, by just reading a, a portion of scripture out of 2 Kings. And I want to make a correction on your handout because on your handout I say 2 Kings 6, uh, 6, 4. It's actually 6 verse 24. 6 verse 24 is what we're going to open up with. And I just, uh, just a little bit of a, uh, uh, a historical context. This is when the kingdoms were divided, Israel to the north. Okay, notice something here. Okay, where's the emphasis? The emphasis on you becoming contagious. Okay, um, not sure what that means. Um, and then, and then now we're in second. We're in a, the Old Testament in Second Kings. Hmm, not exactly the place I would go to if I were to give well, a sermon or even a Bible teaching on evangelism, sharing the good news. We'll, we'll kind of clean this up as we go. But again, the guy's heart's in the right place. I mean, this this guy clearly is wanting the people in his congregation to share the good news. So we're not going to fault him for that. North and Judah to the south. And Samaria was the capital of Israel. And right now they're under a siege from Aram, or the Armenians or the Aramaeans, I should say, which really are the Syrians. They're up in Syria, and they're under a huge siege, and there's a, tr- a terrible famine going on in the land. And you've got to understand the context of what this scripture is written in. It, it is the fact that they were their enemies were attacking them continually. They were continually under attack, and they were hungry all the time. There was a horrible famine in the land. And verse 24 of 2 Kings chapter 6 reads like this. Some time later, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, mobilized his entire army and marched up and laid siege to Samaria. That's the capital of Israel at that time. There was a great famine in the city, and the siege lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver and a quarter of a cab of seed pods for five shekels. Now, thank God that we have not seen that kind of famine or siege to where we have to eat donkey heads. I don't think that would be, uh, I mean, that, that's, that's getting to be as bad as it gets. Okay, people were actually, you read the rest of the scripture, they turned to cannibalism. They were so hungry, they began to eat their kids. They begin to eat their children. That's how bad this famine is. I want to turn back over to uh, uh, chapter 7 and go right to uh, verse 3 to 9. Because the siege begins to lift here. This is talking about uh, their enemies are put to flight. And I want to read this uh, to you to give a little bit of context what I want to share today with you uh, beginning this series. It says in verse 3, Now there were four men with leprosy, the disease of leprosy, at the entrance of the city gate there in Samaria. And they said to each other, why stay here until we die? If we say we go into the city, well, the famine is there and we'll die there. And if we stay here, we're going to die also. 
paraphrasing just a bit. So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. I mean, what do we got to lose, right? Because if they spare us, we're going to live. But if they kill us, eh, then we die anyway. At dusk, they got up and went to the camp of the Arameans. And when they reached the edge of the camp, no one was there. Why wasn't anybody there? I mean, they're under siege, right? This big army camped outside of Samaria. Well, here's why. Verse 6. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound, the sound of chariots and horses and a great army, so that they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and fled, and in the dusk, They abandoned their tents and their horses and donkeys, and they left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. So these two men with leprosy, they reach the edge of the camp, and they go, man, this is a good deal. There's nobody here. Entered one of the tents and ate and drank. Man, after they were thinking about eating donkey heads and, you know, cannibalism, now they got food and water, they're drinking, and and man, this is good stuff. And then they actually looked around in that tent and they found silver and gold and clothes and they went off and what they do? They hit him. They buried him thinking, man, this is a great find. They took the silver. They took the gold. They took the clothes and they went off and hid them. And they returned and entered another tent and took some things from it and hid them also. Then they said to each other, what we're doing here is not right. This is a day of good news and we're keeping it for ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will surely overtake us. So let's go at once and report this back to the royal palace. I want you to think about that just for a minute. Because... It has some really important applications for us when we... Okay, now, here's what he's doing with this text. He's turning this text into a parable about evangelism. I understand the technique that he's doing. I get it. And it's not that the point that he's making, you know, isn't a valid one in some sense. Keep keep with it. Again, if I were to teach on evangelism, this is not the text I would go to. So he's taking this Old Testament story, making it a parable about the need to share good news. We talk about contagious faith. They were hungry. They were being attacked. Things were not good. And God opened a way through making this entire army flee for them to find these tents in this camp to eat, drink, and be merry, to find the silver and gold and bury it to try to keep it for themselves And thankfully, God convicted them and said, this isn't right. You should not keep this for yourself. God has allowed this not just for you, but for all of Israel who was suffering under that siege and famine in the day. And so under that conviction, they went back to the royal palace and they reported. And as you read the rest of the story, Israel was able to go and defeat that army and to find food, and to, to be resourced and provided for. Actually, the army was already gone. They didn't, yeah. So here's the big idea that I want to give to us today as a church family, and even as individuals, that it is not right to keep silent about the blessings that we have received. Okay. 
I'll grant the premise. Totally true. Okay, I'm with you so far. What are the blessings? It's not right. God convict us because we have so much, and God has given us so much and blessed us with so much. God convict us if we're keeping silent about it. If we're Okay, what did God bless us with? We need to be specific here, Dan. We're burying it in the backyard or burying it in our hearts or trying to hide it so that no one else can participate or partake of it. That's the whole theme, I believe, of today's message is that we will be convicted if we're hiding the blessings of God, if we're not truly sharing it, if we're not making it available to those that God brings across our path. So today I want to talk about how do we have a heart? How do we get the motivation to share what God has given us? How? Okay. Just a vague reference to the blessings. And now this becomes a how-to sermon. Apparently, how do you get a contagious heart? Apparently, this is something you've got to make for yourself, apparently. How do we develop a contagious faith? A faith that will not remain within or remain hidden or remain buried, but will come out and it will resource and bless all of those who God brings across our path. How do we develop that kind of faith? How do we develop a faith that is contagious? And I think it's a question that we all need to ask ourselves. Is our faith contagious? Okay, I think this is a category fallacy. I'll explain in a minute, but I just want you to kind of hear more of how he's going to lay this out. It's a category fallacy. I'll explain it shortly. Do other people become blessed because they're around us, because of our spiritual blessings, because of our faith, because of who we serve? Or are we like those two lepers who go in and find something and say, you know what, this is good for me, but I don't care about the rest of you. Go ahead and die in the famine. Well, I want to give you a a few ideas this morning that may help motivate you. It may help you to develop a contagious faith, a faith that doesn't go asleep, a faith that doesn't just say, okay, I'm indifferent and I could care less what's going on in the rest of the world. As long as I'm having a good time, as long as I'm healthy, as long as I can eat and drink and be merry, then who cares about the rest? Weird way to talk about the blessings of God, right? As long as I can eat and drink and be merry, who cares about the rest? Huh? There's a category fallacy going on here. Like I said, I'll explain shortly. But for us to develop a contagious faith, I think, first of all, we need to be mindful every day of our inheritance. We have to be mindful. We have to bring it to our our memory every day. It's a okay, good, good word. Inheritance is a good gospel word because inheritance is not something you earn. It's something that's given to you as a gift upon the death of somebody. That's why our salvation oftentimes is referred to biblically as an inheritance. Who was the one who died so that we can have such a great estate? Jesus Christ. He willed this to us. It's all received as a gift. Inheritance is a good word. A daily reminder of our great inheritance in Christ. Romans 8 verse 17 says, Now if we are children, if you're a child of God out there because of faith in Jesus Christ, then you are what? You are an heir. You have an inheritance. 
You are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in Christ's sufferings, in order also that we might share in his glory. You have an absolutely amazing inheritance as a believer. God has given you a royal inheritance, a spiritual inheritance that one day will be the real thing. Joe Zuniga, he's experiencing that real inheritance right now. On this side of the veil, the majority of it is a spiritual inheritance. But one day it will be the real thing. Because when we really understand how big of a God we have and how much he has given us, the big benevolence of God, we won't be able to keep it in. We won't be able to just hide it. We won't be able to just bury it. Can notice that he's talking about this in very intangible ways here. Again, I think this is all part of the category mistake. He's in the right neighborhood, though. you got to give him props for that. He's in the right neighborhood. But in order to drive this home, he's really got to, well, take the emphasis and put it on the right syllable. He hasn't done that yet. It'll begin to overflow, and we'll be able to give it. Why has he missed it? The answer is because he's now basically browbeating you. You need to do this. You need to do that. You need to notice this is all law, law, law. But what is the gospel? It's good news. It's not law, law, law. It's grace, grace, grace. Uh, oh, we continue. But to others who are in need, we won't want to keep it in when we really understand and comprehend the inheritance that we have in Christ. His Which, if, that, if this is your point, really flash that out. What is that inheritance? What does it look like? His bountiful benevolence, the goodness of God. How many times have you been delivered from a sure accident? Or how many times have you been blessed? How many times has God removed the fear out of your heart, the guilt off your heart? Now notice, this kind of fleshes out what I've been saying. Category mistake here. How many times has he forgiven you of your sin? The benevolence of... Right, that's good. ...of God, the inheritance that we have in him. I mean, I think about the miracle of the new birth. The conversion, yes. the transformation that takes place when we say, Jesus, I believe. And I, uh... I want to follow you. You who were once aliens and strangers are now sons and daughters of the creator of the universe. Yes. Man, we need to remind ourselves of that divine inheritance every day. Because when we do, we will not be able to keep it in for ourselves. Okay. This kind of goes to a subtler point that Pastor Charlie made in his email. It's it's weird to hear a sermon about preaching. Okay, it's weird to talk about talking. Okay, what I mean by that is this: here he's not doing his job. His job is to be a herald and teacher of God's word, but he's not really doing that at this point. He wants a virtue, a vir- he, the virtue that people will share their faith and. Do so, and I'm going to assume that contagious means that it's something that's top of the mind. Sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ is top of the mind, that it's natural, that people, when they are around you, notice, man, there's something different about that person. I, I wonder what it is. And so they ask you, well, you know, what, what's, the, what's up with you? Okay, you know, they, so they, you know, they know something's different, so they want to know what's up. Okay, that, I think that's kind of the idea. 
right? That, that, that there's something that has transpired that just sets you apart in such a way that, you know, when you're at the barber shop getting your, uh, your, your hair buzzed, maybe that's kind of an antiquated uh, metaphor, but when you're, when you're at supercuts, get, <laughs> getting your hair styled, um, that, you know, the lady cutting your hair, you're, you're telling her about Jesus. I mean, you understand what I'm saying? It's, it's something like that. We have a big, benevolent God, and he gives us great and amazing things. You see, people today are going from bar to bar. They're going from toy to toy. They're going from partner to partner to try to find a satisfaction that they never find, only to crash and burn. I deal with it all week long. People who have chased after the things of this world, they've sifted through the garbage dumps of this life only to find themselves sick and broken and hoping that someone will come along and share with them the bountiful blessings of God. His grace and his provisions are vast and they will never run out. There's plenty for everyone. Satan has an assault against every one of you right now. His assault against you right now is to convince you that you are not royalty, that you are not children of God. So now I'm going to need to be convinced I'm royalty? Oh, boy. That you are not spiritually blessed as a co-heir in Christ, but that somehow you are spiritually poor. You're a pauper. You're one who doesn't have anything. That's his assault to keep you in that mind. Well, actually, Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 5 says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Yeah, okay. We're going to stop. I'm going to pause here for a second, and I'm going to try to see if I can explain this properly. Okay, here's the big idea to hijack the the term of the day from the... Uh, these types of churches, okay? Contagious faith. The, the two words together don't quite make any sense. There's the true faith. There's the faith once delivered to the, faith, uh, to the saints. And then there's, the, there's faith and trust in Christ. But faith, what is faith? Okay? What is it? Okay, when we talk about it, we use it in different terms. For instance, if you were to ask somebody from the ancient church, could you tell me what is the Christian faith? The answer that would come back to you is, sure, I can tell you the Christian faith. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, was made man, was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. You get what I'm saying? here right okay that when we talk you know so what in what sense are we talking about contagious faith if we were to say uh we need to make the 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 faith once delivered to the saints contagious you'd immediately go wait a second that doesn't sound right right okay now so the other question comes down to when you say what do you mean by contagious faith well we're, we're looking at a different 
definition of faith. But what is the biblical definition of faith? What is saving faith? Well, a good way to think of that is the Greek word for faith, the, the noun pistis and the verb pistuo tell us about trust, okay? Trust is something that you, 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 it's not just it exists in a vacuum. It's, you have to have an object or a thing that you're trusting in or a person whom you are trusting in. Uh, uh, you know, Norm, uh, Norman Nagel, um, you, the way he describes it is it's like eyesight, okay? It's like eyesight. Faith is like eyesight. It always has to be looking at something. So you don't look at your eyesight because you can't see your eyesight. Instead, your your eyesight looks to something. So faith is like that. Faith has to have something that it latches onto. So when we say we're saved by grace through faith, the immediate question is, is that what is your faith in? Okay. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, you can say, I am saved by grace through Christ. Because faith in Christ then would be, you know, they could be interchanged because faith always has an object to which it looks. Does that make sense? So now with that in mind, since your faith doesn't exist in a vacuum, it's always looking to something. When we say you need to have contagious faith, that when I hear that, I go, well, that sounds like I need to have a contagious Jesus. But then isn't the gospel already the type of good news that when you truly understand the depth and magnitude of that good news, that you can't help but share that good news, right? So let me read a passage that I think comes to bear in this, okay? And this is, again, I understand this is kind of a more subtle distinction that I'm trying to make here. I'm going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'll start at verse 14 for context sake, but I, the, the verse I really want to get down get down to is toward the end of the chapter, but I want to give a fuller context. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we were once we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is past. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in favorable time I listened to you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Okay? So here's the idea. Okay? A pastor, if he would properly distinguish law and gospel... Preach the law in all of its severity to the point of stepping on toes, of literally 
destroying all self-righteousness, preaching the law in such a way that every one of his hearers will unmistakably understand that they stand condemned before a holy and just God who demands perfect obedience to his law and that they have not done that. Instead, they sin against God in thought, in word, in deed, by the things they do, by the things they don't do. And they would say, ah, oh, what a wretched man that I am, or woman, right? Preach the law and all of its sternness to everybody in church. And then preach the gospel in all of its sweetness. The good news that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, giving us the ministry of reconciliation, not counting our sins and trespasses against us. And he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. You preach law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And, and the, the two have to be hooked together in this way. They have to be hooked together, law and gospel, so that people who will see themselves as great sinners and will see them see as a result of how great their sin is through the gospel, they will see that they have a great Savior. Okay, When you do that, Pastor, you will have no need to browbeat people and tell them they need to be contagious. Because when they understand the depth and the magnitude and the glory of the forgiveness of sins and what Christ has done for them on the cross, they will not be able to not tell people about it. But the way this is done is not by browbeating people to apply steps. You need to focus on this. You need to do this and you need to do that. The job of the pastors, the job of the pastors to preach the word, law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Preach the texts. God the Holy Spirit will drive them to despair of their own self-righteousness when you do this. And God the Holy Spirit will regenerate them. And God the Holy Spirit through you know through that new regenerate person will work to sanctify them and focus them on Christ and how great their savior is and by doing that they will not be able to be shut up even to the point of being willing to yield up their own lives rather than stop preaching the gospel but in order for that to happen sinners have to be driven to despair of their own self-righteousness, the right preaching of the law. That's really the job of the law, is to expose our sin and to drive us to despair of our own self-righteousness. Only then does the gospel make sense. Only then does the gospel truly comfort. Only then does the gospel take center stage, because it's none of me and all of Christ. And that's the job of the pastor, to herald Christ. Now, Dan here is doing his best college try at trying to whip people up to be contagious. But see, the thing is, is that the good news is such good news already as it stands that the, you know, that what really needs to be done here is the proper preaching of the good news that will lead to people sharing it when they truly see it as good news. And now we've got some foreign elements in here. You need to see yourself as royalty. Yeah, I'm not so sure about that. Mindset to keep you in that way of thinking about yourself, that you're just a poor person, you don't have anything. How can I make a difference in anybody's life? 
That's the work of the enemy. Uh, notice the, the the here again the, again this is a this is a category error. Where's the emphasis? The emphasis is on you. It's not on Christ. Point me to Jesus. Tell me about Jesus. Tell me about him. The apostles were obsessed with telling the world about Jesus. So tell me about him and stop telling me about what I need to focus on about myself. I don't need to see myself as royalty. I need to see Jesus as king of kings and lord of lords. To take away your inheritance. And how does he do that? He takes it right out of your heart and your mind. And when you think you have something good, and when you experience something good, he says, go bury it, because nobody really wants that. They don't want what you have, but they're desperately saying, tell me about this great God. Tell me about this benevolent God that has given you peace in your life, has removed the guilt off your heart, has given you circumstances in this life that have blessed you. Now we're looking at circumstances in my life that somehow yeah, that's not that's not a package deal with the gospel, especially during times when Christians are being martyred. He says, don't hold it in. Please don't bury it. Go back and tell, as those two lepers did. You need to remind yourself, church, every day. You need to remind yourself that you are a child of God. Actually, it's your job to preach that. You're, you see, you're telling them to remind themselves of that, but your job's to preach preach the word and let them know how they are the adopted sons and daughters of God through Christ's shed blood and resurrection, right? And see, here you're talking about talking, not talking. It's weird. You are a child of God. You're a saint, not a sinner. God has pronounced you... Uh, We're both. Saints among sinners, even though we may sin... We might fall down, but because of what Christ has done, we are forgiven. We are saints who fall into sin on occasion, hopefully, maybe never. Uh, uh. <laughs> if you think that you only occasionally fall into sin, then you don't understand. Christ, uh, when he teaches us to pray, has us daily pray, forgive us our trespasses. Go figure. There's a reason for that, by the way. We know that we sin, but we are saints. You need to remind yourself of that daily. You have to remind yourself that you're blessed. You need to remind yourself that you have eternal life. You need to remind yourself of the promises of God that are yes and amen. You need to remind yourself of the wonderful future that is waiting for you. Yeah, the weird part about this is is that rather than actually preaching law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins... This is all of a sudden turning the promises into slogans or, or those the things you're supposed to say over and over to yourself to, you know, to pep yourself up like Stuart Smalling. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And gosh darn it, people like me. What are those called? Affirmations? Yeah. Oh, no. That's not really going to help. And as you begin to do this, you'll remind yourself of the great inheritance, the great inheritance that God a benevolent God has given you. This will help motivate you to have a contagious faith, having a sense of the wonder of God, having a sense of the character of God, his long suffering. In order for people in a church to understand the sense of the wonder of God, the job of the pastor is to preach that sense so that every Sunday after hearing the word of God, they go, wow. 
Wow. See, that's the job of the pastor. His unconditional love for us, always ready to forgive, always ready to pour out his blessings on us. That will help motivate us to have contagious faith and not some type of attitude that holds the benevolence blessings of God and buries them and hides them. So yeah, here, here's the other piece. Uh, hiding and not preaching the gospel, that's not a sign of belief. That's a sign of unbelief. Um, so here's the deal. I mean, Christians can't help but do good works because that's what they do by nature. I mean, serious. Uh, we, if we're a new creation in Christ, that new man in us can't help but do good works, and we war against our sinful flesh uh, because we're simultaneously saint and sinner, simul justus et peccator. See Romans 7 if you're confused about this. But the point is is that Chris, I mean, Christians who really understand the gospel, like I said, it's, you know, you can't, they can't help but preach the gospel if they're really having Christ placarded Sunday after Sunday. That's what they'll do. It's not that they need motivation. That's like even the, that's like look the wrong category altogether. Remind yourself of the great inheritance that you have in Christ. Secondly, I want you to consider the honor that it is. This will help you have a contagious faith when faith when you consider the honor of being an agent of God. When you consider the honor of being an agent of God. Now. When I was young, notice apparently the honor is on you. Um, get this, the emphasis is not on Christ. It's on you. This is why this is not right. Person, I had kind of two dreams. And one of them was to be an FBI agent. Definitely wanted to do that. And the other one was to be an ambassador to another nation, a foreign nation. I didn't care. But as I got older and I realized that I didn't qualify for either of them, I got quite discouraged. But I didn't realize that God was raising me up. He was forming me. He was working in me through all of these circumstances to be just that, his agent and his ambassador. His agent and his ambassador. And I'll tell you what, it is an honor. It is an honor to be in the employ of God. Yeah, and it's an honor bestowed purely by God's grace. And yes, the scripture does say we're ambassadors. For sure, I just read the passage. I consider it a great honor. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. You have been called to be an ambassador of Christ so that God can appeal to this lost world through you. Yeah, preach the rest of the passage is the reason why I put the context around it, because the context is the gospel itself, the good news of the forgiveness of sins, the proclamation that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's trespasses against him. Please get to that. He wants to make an appeal through you as his ambassador. We implore you on Christ's behalf. This is... His appeal. We implore you, Stevens Point. We implore you, Plover. We implore you, Wisconsin. We implore you, America, to be reconciled with God. That's the appeal that he's asking us to make. Yes. As his ambassador. Yes. You see, you have to understand something. Every one of you sitting here, no matter how you think about yourself, no matter what you feel about yourself, no matter what your experience with God has been, you are God's plan A. 
You're God's plan A. You're his first choice. Oh, man. <clears throat> All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Yeah, the emphasis, you're putting the emphasis on me rather than on Christ. That is the problem here. And guess what? God has no plan B. He has no plan B. There's no second choice. He has called each and every one of you to be a special agent for him. He has given you special gifting, special talents. He's given you a unique personality because he knows that there's a certain caliber of people, a certain type of people, a certain people with a certain type of personality that only you can reach. He has designed you and formed you to reach a certain people in this world. You are Boy, what a great thing I am, rather than great gospel. Wow. Ah, it's exalting the creature over the creator. This is backwards and upside down. By a special agent of his. And yet, we often just think that we're just a spiritual pauper, a spiritual poor person. Yeah, I don't think that's the problem. That we're never ready to be used by God. He's created you. See, when you understand the biblical gospel, you would never think like this. You just wouldn't. The whole point of the biblical gospel is a confession that I am a pauper. I've not, I've got nothing to offer God. In fact, I've got nothing to give to him except for my sin, period. Even my best good works are mucked up with sin. I would, seriously, in this sinful state, my best good works would send me to hell because every one of them is marred with sin. So, ah! When you understand the biblical gospel, you don't think this way. To reach out. To be a special agent, that ambassador in the workplace, in the marketplace, in your realm of influence, whatever that might be. He's made you in such a way that you're the only one that can reach some people. Boy, how special I am. I didn't... Now that's a grave or a great responsibility, but it's also a, a wonderful opportunity. It's a great honor to be in the ploy of God. Now, can we do this on our own? How many of you feel strong about being able to do that? Okay, there's a couple of you out there. They might have a little confidence from God to be in the employ of God. But many of us, we have to resort to the power of the Holy Spirit, don't we? God resort to it? By the way, um, if God the Holy Spirit doesn't convert somebody, I can't. I'm not capable of raising somebody from the dead spiritually. Because it's not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit, says the Lord. Zechariah 4, verse 6. So we need the Holy Spirit to be his ambassadors. We need the Holy Spirit to be his special agents. I think of my friend Will Seitz. He, he's the one that raised his hand. He, just give me one, just anyone. I'll go out and tell him about Jesus. He will not allow one person to pass by that he doesn't reach out in some way, shape, or form and invite him to Band of Brothers, invite him to Highland Church, or get to some place where he can tell him about his faith in Christ. And, you know, you might say, well, he's got the gift of evangelism. Well, I don't know that he's got the gift of evangelism. I just think he knows how much he's been forgiven. 
Right. Right. See, exactly. That guy can't help but tell everyone about Jesus because he's right. He can't help but do that because of how much he's been forgiven. Right. Preach law and gospel, sin and grace. This will work itself out. And what God has delivered and rescued him from and what he has found in that tent what he's found in that tent and he's tasted, he's not going to go and bury. He goes back to the royal palace and says, hey, look what we have for you. Well, uh-huh. I didn't get that. Don't let it go to your head, Will, because. <laughs> yeah, see, that's the point. The way you're preaching it, it's you're preaching the Christian rather than the Christ. And that is not how you yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. It just doesn't work when it comes to preaching the biblical gospel. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to memorize this prayer. And we need as a church to pray. We need to pray this. Lord, I want to be used by you today, today, to share my faith story. I want to be used by you. Share my faith story? Um, no, the, the faith is the story of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, what I received, I passed on of it as of first importance. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. It was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. It's not my faith story. It's the story of Jesus. The story of Jesus is the good news. Have you ever stopped to think, how come that book called Matthew is called The Gospel According to Matthew? Because it's telling us the good news about Jesus, Right? Right. Your story is not the gospel. Your story, yeah, no. Ah. You today to share with someone how you have blessed me and what you have done in my heart and what what kind of changes it's made in my life. Because yeah, see, that's not the gospel. This, the changes in your life, that's not the gospel. The gospel is Christ and him crucified for our sins. Go back to 1 Corinthians 5, 18. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, gave himself the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against. It's all about what Jesus has done. Anybody can tell that good news. Anybody. Because we all realize that that truly is good news when we understand that we're all deeply, 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 fatally, sinfully marred to the point where we cannot save ourselves, period, at all, nothing. We have nothing to offer God except for sin. Christ saves us. This is the good news. Anybody can share that when they understand it. Because God, by his Holy Spirit, will give you divine appointments. He'll bring people across your path that you are exquisitely suited to tell the story to. He's pre- yeah, I, if I'm going to tell anybody the story, I'm going to tell them the story about Jesus, not mine. Prepared those people for you. But we have to pray and say, Lord, use me. We have to be willing to go back and share. <sighs> well, we need to keep in mind the fact that we have this tremendous benevolent God, the wonders of God, the grace of God. The- yeah, please tell me more about that benevolence in specific terms and not just theoretical abstractions. Mercies of God the inheritance that we have in Christ. Secondly, we have to realize that it is a tremendous honor to be used by God, to be his agent, to be his ambassador. It's an honor. It's a true honor. Thirdly, this is something that you're going to have to do. I've done it, and this is tough. Notice this is all law. There's no gospel here. Literally, it's all law. 
you gotta, you have to, you this, you that. La, 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 la. Tell me about that merciful God again. I'd like to hear about him. And that's settle this in your mind. You gotta settle this in your mind. You gotta. That hell is for real. It certainly is. Hell is for real. Now, I did a message not too long ago called Hell is for Real. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that because we go a little bit deeper into the theology of it. But today, I just want to just remind us that hell is for real. And when we keep this in mind, it will cause us to develop a contagious faith that we'll be willing to share the story of salvation and the story of how God rescues us. You know, that's why Jesus wept over Jerusalem. I want you to think about it. Why do you think Jesus was weeping over the city? Because he looked over the city and he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And he saw those sheep were headed for the cliffs of destruction. He knew where they would end up. That's why Jesus spent a lot of time confronting the religion of the day, the Pharisees, the politicians, the tax collectors. Tell me again about the, the, the religion of the Pharisees. Why was it wrong? I mean, this, see, again, notice he's just glossing all of this stuff. Ah, preach the text, law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Show me Christ from all of the scriptures. Continue to placard him. Yeah, I'll tell the world about him. When I understand how great he is, I'll tell the world. I can't help but do that. And it's not something I have to do. You can't keep me from doing it. See the difference? Because he knew that they were on the road to destruction. And unless they repented, unless they got on a different road, they would die in their sins and live for eternity in condemnation. Jesus knew this. That's why he kept kept such an arduous schedule day and night of preaching and teaching the kingdom of God. That's why God allowed him to do so many miraculous healings so that he could show that this is truly the way. It confirmed his word that hell is for real. His word was confirmed every time. And if Jesus says it's real, I don't know who we are to think we're going to try to explain it away. I hate talking about this subject matter. And you know what? I think all the church world hates talking about this subject matter. Matter of fact, even Christians right now are trying to erase hell out of the Bible. Let's just, wherever it's mentioned, let's just erase it. Because they don't want to... Yeah, I agree. That, that's exactly what's happening, and it's quite atrocious. Um, but see, this isn't the solution. Let me read you another passage. Romans chapter 10, verse 11. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all of us who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Hearing through the word of Christ. You know what's needed? People who preach Christ. 
not hell, but Christ. Hell is very real. It's the tangible, visible manifestation, an eternal manifestation of the wrath of God, of which many people will experience sadly and tragically. But we here, let us tell everybody about how everyone who believes in Christ will not be put to shame. Not when Christ returns, not when they die, they will not be put to shame. And that everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. So we've got to go and tell everybody about Jesus, not me. Jesus. To confront the truth, the reality of the fact is hell is real and real people are going there for eternity. We can't get apart from that. Jesus believed it. He taught it. He tells a story about how five minutes in hell made a, an indifferent, uncaring, unloving rich man an evangelist. One who would say, go and tell. Luke chapter 16, do you remember the story between the rich man and Lazarus? Lazarus was a poor and he basically got his sustenance from the rich man's crumbs, whatever he didn't need. And the rich man was just an indifferent, insensitive, it's all about himself. So they both die. And of course, Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom in the place of paradise. He's in heaven. And the rich man who was indifferent and unconscious about the condition of the world around him was in torment. And so he yells across the pond, this great gulf fixed, and said, Hey, come and help me. Give me some water, Lazarus. Abraham, send Lazarus. Give me a taste of that water. Just quench this agony just for a moment. Abraham can't do it. There's no way to get from here to there. When it's done, it's done. There's a great gulf fixed between us. He says, oh, well then, then send Lazarus and go tell my brothers. Go tell them. This is for real. Jesus says, or Abraham says, you know what? Let them listen to the preachers. Let them listen to the prophets because they've already said it. They need to believe that it's for real. Five minutes in hell will change every one of us into an evangelist. There are people who have actually visited hell. You can read their stories. And every one of them has found a place to come back and tell the story. Listen, um, most of us are not going to have the opportunity to spend five minutes in hell on a tour there and you know get the cook's you know, tour of, of hell and then come back to tell the story. What will make Christians evangelists is placarding Christ. Preaching the law in its utmost sternness to drive them to despair of their own self-righteousness and placarding their crucified and risen Savior and telling them that all who believe and call on the name of Jesus will not be put to shame because he was pierced for their transgressions, bruised for their iniquities. Preach the gospel to them. It's a place that's for real. We don't want to go there. Luke 16, verse 27, he answered, Then I beg you, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. 
You know, that's why I'm so motivated to be a pastor. And I tell you, this is a tough job. It's a hard job. I've had some hard jobs in my life, but nothing like this. That's why I'm so motivated to be a pastor. That's why I'm motivated to travel 17,000 miles to preach and teach to an unreached people group. You think that's fun? If you think that's a vacation or something cool. Yeah, now you're preaching about yourself. Um, can you tell me more about that kind, gracious God again, please? I'd like to hear about him. That's, he's interesting. You not so much. Well, you're going with me next time. <laughs> yeah. Okay, God heard that. I do that because this is, this is, this is it. This, I want you to get this. I do that because I believe with all of my heart that Christianity is the only way to live. And I believe what Christianity is the only way to live? Huh. All of my heart that Christianity is the only way to die. And I deal with death so much. And the loss. But when they're believers, there is a joy. There is a knowledge. There is a comfort. There is a favor. There is a grace that only we experience. But those who do not have Christ, they don't experience that. They're lost. People today are deceiving themselves. They're trying to erase the reality of hell. They're trying to erase this idea that God is going to hold them accountable. The scriptures are very clear that God is going to hold every person accountable for his life in this life. The Bible is very clear. For once, it's appointed for man to die and then the judgment. You don't get off the hook. The only way you get off the hook is because Christ was on the cross. So if you don't have Christ and his cross in your life, you're not off the hook. Too many people are putting hope in the fact that there's no accountability from God's perspective on the way they live and who they put their trust. We want to eat, drink, have sex with whoever we want. And be merry, because there's no judgment. But the truth is, it is given to man once to die, and then the judgment. So what we do here at Highland Church is serious, serious, serious business. This is not a time uh, or a, an organization or an organiz- of, of, of just play. We have work to do. And God wants us to develop into contagious Christians so we can do that work. That we too will be convicted in our heart to say, it is not right that we should hold this self, hold this for ourselves. That we should keep it for ourselves. You know, complacency about this thing, church, is a cancer that we cannot afford. Complacency about our faith and what God has has done in our lives. So notice at this point, he's pretty much just laid bare everybody there in the congregation with the exception of one person who he held up as an example, actually himself being the second, two people, he, him and one other person. You know, basically you all, you're doing something wrong. You're being complacent. So what's the solution? 
try harder. Not a crucified and risen Savior. This is this is utterly a confusion of long gospel. He doesn't know how the two fit together properly, and he's uh, again. The, the frustrating thing here is is that this guy wants the right thing, but he thinks he's going to get there by preaching and browbeating and and telling people to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, rather than placarding the crucified and risen Savior who bled and died for their sins. Although the gospel's shown up here a few times for sure, uh, and the sharing of it is a cancer that we cannot afford. We cannot, we must not become preoccupied about what church can do for me. If we become preoccupied with that, we will not care about this city. We will not care about this world. It will all be about can we find something in another tent that will please us. Do you know that why you are in the top 5% of all wealth in the world, if you just have a car and a place to live and food on your table and clothes to wear, do you know why? Because God expects you to find those who do not have and give. Because giving is the highest form of living. It will always be the most blessed life that you can have. Is to give out of your blessing so that others might be blessed. You probably were here last week, some of you, and we shared about Myanmar and David B. Cho, who is uh, handling an orphanage of 40 kids whose moms and dads were wiped away in the cycle. And then we launch into another story. That's not in the Bible, but about him. See the emphasis? He's preaching the Christian rather than the Christ and telling them they need to go and share the good news, but he's the, the good news isn't properly hooked up in any way here. It's there. It's kind of hanging in midair. Ah! Clone of 2008. Every day he believes God for three portions of rice for those children. We throw that away. Every meal, more than likely. Now, I'm not trying to play on the guilt thing. I'm just saying we need to be givers. A little bit late for that. <laughs> I'm not trying to say, I'm not trying to lay on the guilt thing, but we need to be givers. Guilt. <sighs> All law. Because God has so generously and benevolently give to us. Yeah, and you're preaching the gospel in a very backhanded kind of way here. Even in Jesus, what I would imagine was his worst time hanging on the cross, racked with pain and being tortured with the suffering of the cross, still had it within him to turn to one of the criminals and said, today you'll be with me in paradise. He was... You know, that's good news. Tell me more about that. I, I really want to hear more about that. Still willing to snatch one soul from the, from the jaws of hell. Yeah, tell me more about that story. I really need to hear more about that point you're making there flesh that out and that's that's the example jesus leaves with you and i we'll be we be willing to be used of god in whatever way to snatch one more soul uh, oh, from that destruction well lastly i want to leave you with this to develop a faith that is contagious you need to experience the joy of leading someone to christ Oh, there is no greater spiritual high than the reward of leading someone to Jesus Christ. 
Once you taste of that, you'll never go back. When you have someone come to you and look you in the eyes and say, thank you. Thank you for spending the time with me when I was unlovely. Thank you for talking to me when I probably wasn't very pleasant to you. Thank you for at least spending enough of your time and energy and your words to help me get off the pathway to destruction. I was headed for hell until I heard the message of the gospel and now I'm on the highway to heaven. Thank you. And when that happens and when you sense that and you have that reward, all heaven is rejoicing with you, but there's something that happens in you. You'll never go back because you've helped a soul find that right place. It's the greatest spiritual high. Luke 15, 7 it says, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous who do not need to repent. God is more concerned about the one person that has yet to hear in this city than he is this 200 people who have righteousness because of faith. His eyes are on the lost. His heart is beating for those who have yet to hear and yet to make faith. And he's saying, Highland Church, it's time. It's time for us to be contagious in our faith. Because sharing your faith is the greatest contribution you'll ever make into a person's life. I don't care. You may have done some pretty awesome things in your life. But until you share faith, until you bring someone to the idea of faith in Christ, it's not the greatest contribution. Okay, let me give a different metaphor. Okay, Christians are likened to sheep. Right? Do you, I mean, seriously, if you were a shepherd, if you had immature sheep, okay, would you be yelling at them, you need to be contagiously fertile? Why aren't you reproducing? You go, uh, because I'm immature, I'm not ready to reproduce yet. So then you would, you know, you, you understand what I'm saying here? The way you make sheep who can reproduce is by feeding them and caring for them, not browbeating them about their infertility. You, you get what I'm saying here? Um, it's, it's, this is just, it's off. It's, it's well-meaning, but it's like missing all of the major points of, of how the stuff, you, you, do you know what um, mature sheep do naturally? They reproduce. Yeah, that's what they do. Um, so the goal is to make mature sheep and you do that by preaching Christ, preaching the gospel, feeding them with God's word, mature sheep reproduce. That's what they do. Okay. Orange trees do not have to be told to produce oranges. That's what they do. Apple trees do not have to be told to produce apples. That's what they do because they're apple trees. Christians don't have to be, you understand what I'm saying? Real, true Christians who are fed the word of God and are mature don't have to be browbeaten to share the good news. It's what they do. It's the same thing. Sharing your faith is that great contribution. Well, I'm a little bit amped up about this because I know that this life on this earth is a temporary assignment. Don't get too used to it, the Bible says, because it's a vapor. You want to try to hold on to it, and it will always evade you. Stop sifting through the garbage dumps of this world and 
enjoying the benevolence of God. Maybe you're here today. Maybe you're here today and you, you, you've, never, you've never made the decision to get off of your current pathway in life that leads to destruction because you know you, you don't have a living faith in Jesus Christ. Today's your day to change that, that you can make room in your heart for the King of Kings. Oh, man. The Bible doesn't say this. That you can, by faith, receive the spiritual inheritance that Jesus Christ received from his Father because you now, by faith, are co-heirs with Christ. Incoherent preaching of the gospel there. That wasn't lucid. Maybe you're here today and you need to make that room in your heart. You need to receive Christ. You need to make him the Lord of your life. So with every head bowed, let's just close our eyes. Okay, done. <laughs> That's as far as we go. Ah. Okay. So let me try to wrap this up. Here's the issue. Number one, to his benefit, he has a heart for those who are lost. He hasn't compromised doctrine by denying the doctrine of hell or getting fancy with you know, postmodern word games and deconstruction and stuff like that. That's all great. Okay, we've even heard the gospel in different places in here, but there was an utter confusion of law and gospel, and he was preaching the Christian rather than the Christ, and he really wasn't preaching any particular text. Okay, the, like I just said just a minute ago, this I see this sermon as the equivalent of basically screaming at immature orange trees for not producing oranges. The way you get orange trees to produce oranges is by caring for the fee for the you know for the tree you know making sure that it's watered that you know it's fertilized that it's getting the nutrients that it's needed you know that you might even have to prune some you know errant you know branches you know some sucker branches and stuff like that yeah that's the idea and it'll produce fruit because that's what it does preach Christ feed people his word Make them strong in the faith. Preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Law to its sternest, fullest, scariest sense. Gospel to comfort and to point us to Christ. And you know what Christians do? They share that gospel. They can't help but do it. To, I don't see the thing is, is that that's Christians do good works because they are a new creation in Christ. Good trees bear good fruit. They can't help but do it. You know, if you're an orange tree, you, you produce oranges. If you're an apple tree, you produce apples. You get what I'm saying here? That's the idea. Abide in Christ. He's the vine. We're the branches. The one who abides in him bears much fruit. So point us to Jesus and help us to pl keep our eyes focused on him, Pastor. That's your job. But see, you took our eyes off of Jesus on this sermon. You put our eyes back in ourselves which doesn't help. It actually gets in the way. It's off just enough to keep us from being unfruit from from being fruitful and makes us unfruitful. Ugh. So close yet not there. All right. So um, I'd like to know what you think. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or you can follow me on Twitter. 
My name there, at Pirate Christian. Till next week, may God richly bless you. And the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ is by Carrie's death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.